what's most interesting actually is how much some of the core and fundamental issues that people who work on cyber strategy and policy have been debating for the past almost 20 years are really still the same set of issues. And 556 bullets are, you know, you can buy them in mass. You can get a whole pallet delivered and you got them for the range and you count them and they're, they're tangible items. And you know exactly the capability of both that weapon system and the delivery system, as well as what the impact's going to be on your adversary. And cyber assets and cyber capabilities and cyber tools, however you want to phrase it, are not the same. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Ambo, editorial director at MWI. And a while back, we launched a joint initiative with the Army Cyber Institute called the Competition in Cyberspace Project. On this episode, I'm joined by two guests from the Army Cyber Institute, Maggie Smith and Erica Lonergan. Since the project launched, we have published dozens of articles on cyber-related topics. In fact, the wide range of topics that fit under the cyber umbrella is one of the themes of this conversation. Maggie and Erica discuss how cyber differs from the other warfighting domains and the challenges those differences pose, as well as cyber's unique talent management requirements, what strategic competition might look like in cyberspace, and even the role of cyber in the ongoing war in Ukraine. It is a wide-ranging and fascinating conversation on a really important and dynamic set of subjects. Before we get to it, as always, just a couple quick notes. First, if you're enjoying the MWI podcast, wherever you're listening, please take a second to give it a rating or leave a review. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Maggie Smith and Erica Lonergan. Maggie and Erica, thank you both so much for joining me for uh, for what I'm really expecting to be a fantastic discussion on on a really important, uh, well, on a range of really important topics. Thank you. Thanks so much. So we are going to talk about cyber today. And, you know, as I said, one of the difficult things about a conversation about cyber is that it's not just one topic. Uh, it's really sort of this huge range of, of interrelated topics and, you know, I struggled as I was preparing for this episode to, to kind of figure out where the natural place to sort of put up some boundaries for the conversation is and the best that I could come up with because we're the Modern War Institute is to mostly focus on a defense perspective. Uh, the Defense Department and Joint Forces equities in cyberspace, their interests, their authorities, what have you. Obviously, DOD is just, just you know, one stakeholder, uh, stakeholder, excuse me, among many, but I think that will help to give at least a little structure to a conversation about this thing that, by its nature, is conceptually nebulous. Um, Maggie, I want to start with you. You are assigned to the Army Cyber Institute, and you direct a joint project between ACI and MWI called the Competition in Cyberspace Project. Given that perspective, uh, to kind of get the ball rolling, so to speak, and, and maybe provide a little bit of a foundation for the discussion, I wonder if you can... Uh, sort of share one or two of the cyber issues or particular threats or, uh, you know, emerging or especially challenging dynamics in cyberspace that people like you who, who work on these issues are really paying attention to right now? Yeah, sure. Um, so we started the joint project between the Modern War Institute and ACI uh, called the Competition in Cyberspace Project because we felt and my conversations with you, John, we felt that there was a need or there was a space to have deeper conversations about the way that cyberspace um, relates to military power as well as military operations in our modern military force. And it's a massive topic. And one of the things that really kind of piques my interest mostly is a bit obscure, but it relates to the way that we have so much of our critical infrastructure is in private hands or owned by private companies. And one of the really interesting aspects of the way technology has developed for those types of um, companies and our big industrial systems is that there has been a convergence of information technology and operations technology. So if you think of a pipeline that's passing gas or, um, or oil, the operations technology is the tech or the machinery that runs the pipeline. 
But then the information technology is typically the billing or those types of business systems that are required to um, run a business. And what's happened with this convergence is that increasingly operations technology is reliant on information technology to function. So you may program a switch or a router or something that um, happens on that operations technology through an internet connection. And so that has created additional vulnerabilities that are very, you know, they're, they're big risks in terms of to our critical infrastructure as well as to cyberspace. And then the other thing that really fascinates me about this domain is how it intersects everything. Um, we're going to talk about it, I think, later. But what I love about cyberspace and being a cyber officer is that we are both wholly dependent upon the other domains of warfare, but we are also um, fully kind of consumed by the broader information environment. So what I mean by that is, you know, in order for cyberspace to exist, we need land, sea, air, and space to exist. Um, so we are dependent upon those domains in order to exist. And we intersect the operations in all of those other domains. And increasingly, those domains are becoming fully dependent upon cyberspace as either a communications mode or um, for operations. And so that intersection and the relationship between the traditional domains of warfare and cyberspace as a domain of warfare is really interesting. And then that is all nested within the broader information environment, because I see cyberspace as a subset of the broader information environment. You're doing a, a very excellent job of foreshadowing a lot of the things I want to talk to you about today. Erica, you also work at ACI, Army Cyber Institute. You previously had a role on the Cyberspace Solarium Commission as well, which, and you can, you know, please do correct me if I'm misstating this, but that commission was established and, and directed by Congress with what I think was a pretty wide mandate of sort of exploring cyber threats and risks and then identifying policy ideas to address them. From that perspective, you know, with that experience in mind, um, and of course that of other previous work that you've done, you both have more extensive CVs working on these issues than uh, than I've mentioned. But you also have a really interesting vantage point. Can you, you know, can you weigh in as well with maybe a couple of the things that are going on in cyberspace that that you think are are maybe especially important right now? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess I think um, I think what's most interesting actually is how much some of the core and fundamental issues that people who work on cyber strategy and policy have been debating for the past almost 20 years are really still the same set of issues. And, um, and I'm not sure why, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure why that's the case, but I think that, um, you know, not just based on my work on the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, but based on engagement with like academics and scholars who do work in this field and other types of policymakers, we're still asking ourselves a similar set of questions, which is um, what is the role of um, cyber operations and warfighting? Um, is cyber deterrence possible? And what does cyber deterrence even mean? And what thresholds, you know, what's the threshold at which it um, it operates and what are the effective mechanisms of deterrence? Is cyberspace a dangerous domain or not? Is it becoming increasingly militarized? And um, and I think that like, you know, to me, it's a bit frustrating that, um, you know, I think a lot of it rests on these kind of competing ideological camps or different theoretical perspectives with this, um, you know, with this reliance almost on kind of a crutch of an argument that, well, cyber is this domain that's so esoteric, we can't really study it, it's so classified. Um, and so you end up with these kind of competing, um, you know, competing camps from a theoretical perspective, but actually we've learned a lot about the nature of cyberspace. Um, and there's a lot that we can observe and increasingly there's more and more that we can observe. And so for me, I think that where we need to go as a field is to really, um, you know, take more of an empirically grounded approach and actually learn the lessons, the right lessons from what we're seeing taking place in this domain and really kind of puncture the assumption that cyberspace is unknowable, it's hard to study, and therefore we just like rest on our different kind of views that deterrence is or is not possible or cyberspace is or is not escalatory. So that's both kind of how I've seen the field evolve and also some of my frustrations with it. So you have basically completed the task um, that Maggie started of, 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 you know, like I said, sort of foreshadowing all of the things I want to talk about, which is fantastic. 
I want to ask you a question about a sort of guiding strategic idea, this notion of strategic competition that, you know, it's an idea that frankly is, is, is a skeleton of a strategy, maybe um, perhaps the, you know, it offers the broad contours of a strategy, but it's not necessarily a strategy in itself, at least at this point. If we apply that rough strategic outline, uh, such as it is, with all of its uh, attendant vagueness to a domain that is, you know, that is that is itself characterized in part by a certain vagueness and, and maybe has some dimensions that are not are not fully defined uh, in part because compared to other operational environments, cyberspace is still really new and in part because, you know, it's highly dynamic and it, it evolves as technology advances. So, so this task of understanding what this ill-defined thing, competition, looks like in this dynamic and difficult to define environment of cyberspace, you know, that task of figuring out what that looks like is, at least to a non-specialist like me, um, it seems like it's not an easy one. Uh, but presumably it's one that you, uh, you know, Maggie, it's one that you believe is an important one since you named the project, you direct the competition in cyberspace project. Is that accurate? Or, you know, given all of the possible names you could have given to the initiative like this, that, you know, that would have communicated a purpose and intent, you know, why call it the competition in cyberspace project? So partly because uh, that's kind of the, the in vogue word and the term that we like to use to talk about the ways that we are interacting with adversaries at this stage. But the way that I think you brought up some fascinating points. And the first thing that I want to say is that, uh, you know, we, we've done, I think, since so cyber as a domain really first came into our lexicon in like 04 with one of the defense strategies and I'll pull up the exact one, but um, thinking about it as a domain of conflict or an environment of conflict. And as a military, we're very good at war and at peace. Like we know how to do garrison operations. I mean, we have atrophied a little bit on that um, because we've had 20 years of of conflict, but um, but we know how to, to fight really well. And in the army, we're very good at like moving lots of big, heavy equipment around and, and people around. And we got that down. Um, what's different with cyberspace is, so when I think about, when I think about the units that I've been a part of and their steady state operations, it's daily interaction with adversary networks or daily interaction on problem sets that impact national security. And much of it occurs kind of in this strategic uh, kind of realm where we're trying to figure out ways to have and maintain initiatives over our adversaries. And so cyberspace, unlike armed conflict or kinetic conflict, um, is an application of almost soft power where you can do a lot with signaling. And this is something that Erica researches a lot. But I think one of the misnomers that we have, based on the fact that we are a very war versus peace um, force, is that offense and defense are bifurcated and that they don't intersect. And what I think we should move towards is this understanding that these small interactions and all of the activities that we do in and through cyberspace are striving to maintain our initiative, to maintain our strategic advantage in this space, because as we've seen, cyberspace is really where our information travels. It's where, um, you know, information and data is stored. And so those are strategic assets that we need to protect. And our ability to understand what our adversaries are doing in this space is considered in many ways like an offensive kind of intelligence Title 50 type operation to understand where our adversaries are, what their capabilities are, and all of that. But all of that type of intelligence and those offensive operations to be able to understand what's going on in adversary space feed into our defensive posture and inform our forces that are working to protect and make the U.S. and our networks um, and our assets better protected against if there is going to be an attack. And I think the other assumption that needs to be made is that security is static. Um, or it's something that you can achieve instead of something that is an ongoing kind of state of mind or attitude where it's this cycle of what am I doing now? What could I be doing better? What are our adversaries doing? How do I need to change up my steady state operations in order to better protect? And that is a cycle that goes on and on and on and on and on and continuously needs to be reassessed because adversaries are finding new and inventive ways to um, 
exploit vulnerabilities in our networks. There are new risks that face our networks. There are new risks that face our assets, critical infrastructure, whatnot. Uh, so I think those are two things that are better suited towards a competition type frame or mindset where it's a constant evaluation of our current state and what we can be doing better where gaps or vulnerabilities may exist. And then this understanding that we don't have a clean line between offensive and defensive capabilities, because in many ways, our defensive capabilities and working to secure and harden networks is really posturing us to maintain a strategic advantage over our adversaries. So it's kind of an offensive action that is really defensive in nature, if that makes sense. I want to just also, if it's okay, just jump in on one point about the idea of competition um, and some of the challenges that Maggie mentioned about how, um, you know, how the military thinks about competition because we like kind of the binary of war versus peace. And I actually think that it's not um, the challenge of wrapping our heads around competition is not a cyber unique problem. I think it's a problem that um, extends across you know, lots of other domains and, um, and capabilities. And the reality is that we moved to this idea of great power competition because politically we wanted to move away from 20 years of war, right? And kind of shift to um, addressing the rising threat of China and moving more toward, more toward things that we're comfortable with, which is kind of, you know, nation state strategic interaction um, at kind of like a larger scale. Um, but the problem is that competition itself is not a strategy, right? Like it describes a condition, but it doesn't provide guidance on what the objectives are. Like we are competing with China to do what? Uh, we are competing with, you know, Russia to do what? You know, it, and that's, I think, where there's really a, a gap and a need for some good strategy on clarifying, like, what is the end state? How do we get there? What are the left and right limits? Not just for competition in cyberspace, but for sort of the broader, um, you know, the broader scope of questions about about competition. So, uh, so yeah, I think the problem is when we use, you know, uh, these types of concepts as substitutes for strategy. Uh, when they're not, uh, because competition's not a strategy, and we're in kind of a world of hurt if we see competition as a strategy. So let's talk about cyber as a warfighting domain. You know, we have we have five warfighting domains: land, sea, air, space, and cyberspace. The last, you know, the last two of those, space and cyberspace, were sort of thrown into the mix much more recently in terms of conceptualizing them as distinct domains of war alongside uh, alongside the uh, the others: land, sea, and air. You know, there are ongoing discussions about whether those are the right ones to identify and, and sort of codify as such, as warfighting domains. Um, you know, we talk about the information environment or the information dimension, but, you know, people argue that that should be considered a domain. We also talk about human terrain or the civil environment. You know, again, people argue that that should be considered a domain. There are also people who question whether or not it's wise to consider cyberspace a domain because, after all, you know, the other four are physical, definable spaces. Maggie, you are a, uh, a cyber officer. I wonder if you have, uh, you know, a particularly strong feeling about that. Obviously, you know, on one hand, treating it as a domain does maybe uh, inherently elevate the, uh, the sort of implied significance of the things we do in cyberspace and, and the threats we face there, which is a good thing because, you know, they're important. They are significant. On the other hand, you know, if we if, if we think of cyber as one of five warfighting domains, I wonder if you know it can have the effect of kind of encouraging us to try to apply concepts that are that are really sorted to those four physical domains into this virtual one, which uh, you know, which doesn't always work well. So I I have pretty strong opinions about this, partly because my branch depends on it, but. Um, but I actually dug into a lot of the doctrine on this, and so. Uh, Back in 2000, when they did the Joint Vision 2020, that's when they really talked about and started talking about domains of warfare. And so since 2000, so 22 years, it, like our military lexicon has really been shaped, like our force structure, our purpose, and our operational environment has really been defined by this concept of a domain of warfare. And then it was in like, the 2004 military national military strategy that cyber as a domain of conflict first kind of entered our military 
discussion. Um, of course, we know that in 2010 is when we had, you know, cyberspace was declared a domain and we had the formation of U.S. Cyber Command as a subunified command under U.S. STRATCOM. And so I think there's been this really interesting evolution. So placing it I, from my perspective, and um, Erica may disagree with me on this, but from my perspective, placing cyber underneath STRATCOM was a signal in many ways that people were concerned about cyber as being this uh, kind of weapon of mass destruction and as a really force of kind of, you know, nuclear bomb type capability that could be decisive um, as a weapon in warfare. So placing it under strategic command because it was global and they saw it as global and they saw it as potentially escalatory and threatening and that something could happen that was absolutely catastrophic almost to the level of like the, the a nuclear explosion. Um, but I think over time, we've seen that that is not necessarily the case. And there are a lot of activities that happen in cyberspace, non-kinetic or non-lethal application of force. And so that has changed and we became a, you know, a fully unified or combatant command in 2018. And that really kicked off kind of our current thinking that the way to get after cyberspace or the way to maintain our initiative within cyberspace is to, to have this strategy as a military of persistent engagement. And I love thinking about persistent engagement because that's the reality that I felt when I was working ops, was that it was this ongoing interaction with the environment that was also an interaction with adversaries, but also an interaction with other entities within that space. Um, and so as a domain of warfare, I do think it makes sense because it is something that does requires attention. So even if you're a naval officer, you understand the concept of land warfare because you are part of a joint force. So you understand how the application and the close proximity in lateral water or literal waters like can have an impact on what that land force is doing because the application of power and and strike power from sea is going to benefit any land maneuver that you have going on. Um, and I think one of the interesting parts about the Ukrainian conflict that's ongoing is we're able to kind of study and have a new problem set to look at cyberspace operations, to see their relationship to warfare, to see their relationship to kinetic and non-kinetic activities that are taking place on that battlefield. So I do think it should be a domain. I, but what really does drive me nuts is that so when we think about our joint doctrine, we have seven functions that are joint functions, right? Um, and so we have the command and control, we have um, information, we have intelligence, we have fires, we have movement and maneuver, we have protection and we have sustainment. So all of those joint functions in most modern militaries, right, they rely on cyberspace for some form of either communication, record keeping, all of that type of stuff, logistics, everything. So cyberspace is both pervasive, but then when we think about the, the actual joint functions, a lot of people will minimize the application of cyber force or power to a joint function instead of as a domain, in part because what we're thinking of is the vehicle by which we can conduct command and control. Like cyberspace gives us the communications lines by which we can conduct command and control. It provides us the systems that can run our logistics um, so that we can get things to different places. Uh, it provides us with an ability to, um, you know, target what, and you, our weapon systems are all connected to them. So I think we run the risk of minimizing when we use kind of maneuver analogies in cyberspace or to describe cyberspace operations, we minimize both the impact that cyber can have and we put ourselves into a box and we only think in maneuver terms in, in ways that we can employ cyber power. And that's limiting because it cuts off creativity because cyberspace is a domain. We have different options in cyberspace than we do in the physical space. And when we put a box to think about it in terms of maneuver around cyber as basically a weapon system or a joint warfighting function, then we take away the aspects of being creative in this domain and really leveraging the talent and the innovation that we have to find kind of exquisite ways to complicate things for our adversaries. 
Erica, any thoughts on this? Does it does it make sense to conceive of cyber as a domain, and and you know maybe are there problems associated with either doing so or not doing so? Yeah, no, I I actually I I agree that I think uh, I think it's okay to call cyberspace a domain of warfare, um, less from a like conceptual perspective and more just from like a bureaucratic politics perspective. Like if we are going to agree that the DOD, that the joint force has a role in cyberspace, then we have to use the lexicon and the frameworks that have been established to uh, to typologize that because that affects how we organize ourselves, how we manage and equip, how we operate, um, how we develop doctrine and so on. So there were these sort of early debates in the cyber literature about, you know, around the time that the DOD defined cyber as a domain of warfare about whether it's right to call it that. And I think that there are compelling sort of theoretical arguments for why maybe it's not the perfect analogy. And Chris Demchek at the Naval War College had done a lot of early writing on this. And she actually describes cyberspace as a substrate, which is a term I think she borrowed from biology, but I am not a biologist, so don't quote me on that. But it's this idea that it's this kind of foundation that feeds everything else. I think there's logic to that, but um, if we want the military to be able to operate in and through cyberspace, we have to, you know, we have to map it onto the terms that exist. And so I don't have sort of a problem with using that construct, but I do agree with Maggie that it's limiting. And I think the challenge is figuring out like how to pull out or carve out sort of exceptions for, or create room for creativity and thinking around what is unique about cyberspace within this sort of construct that's existed for a long time. And that is, um, you know, shaped by, you know, leaders who maybe don't understand cyberspace, uh, who find it confounding. Um, so there's, there's that tension there. And I, and I think that, I think that Maggie is totally right that we use these analogies and we've written about sort of the challenges of reasoning by analogy, right? So there's uh, particularly the influence of strategic command, right? And initially placing cyber under strategic command, the idea that cyber is a form of strategic fires, um, you know, the thinking in the cyber community has evolved a lot since then, but I don't think the thinking within the broader DOD community has necessarily evolved since that time. And so, yeah, there are those gaps and there are those tensions, but at the end of the day, uh, you have to fit it into that, into that existing framework. Uh, but, but you end up with, with these kind of frustrating uh, challenges and tensions that, that we're seeing emerge, uh, you know, for the past couple of years as military cyber forces have become more operational in cyberspace as a result of changes to strategy and law and policy. I always, so part of the reason that I get frustrated is when we're talking, when we think about actually the application of cyber power, a lot of people will say the phrases like cyber bullet or cyber rifle and those types of misnomers. Um, and I, the problem that I have with that is it really expresses to the broader audience that a tool and a, or a capability in cyberspace or a code, a line of code, is equivalent to like a 5.56 round. But like if I go to a range and I fire my M4 and I hit a 50 meter target, it's going to have the same effect if I aim it right, right? Every time. I know exactly what it's going to do to a human that's 50 meters away from me. And 5.56 five, bullets are, you know, you can buy them in mass. You can get a whole pallet delivered and you got them for the range and you count them and they're, they're tangible items. And you know exactly the capability of both that weapon system and the delivery system as well as what the impact's going to be on your adversary. And cyber assets and cyber capabilities and cyber tools, however you want to phrase it, are not the same because the the environment is much more dynamic. Like humans are not going to evolve their own exoskeleton that can't be penetrated by a bullet. We don't, we have body armor, but still we're not organically going to develop something. Whereas within cyberspace updates and, and you know, um, firmware updates, hardware updates, software updates, all of those types of things change the 
the logical presentation of that device in cyberspace. And so if I'm trying to hack into a cell phone, that's an Android phone version X, and all of a sudden version X.1 comes out, then that capability or that vulnerability that used to exist may no longer exist. And therefore that would render my capability or my tool or my exploitation um, approach would have to change because that vulnerability is no longer there. And so I think that's something where we get into some muddy waters with applying maneuver lexicon at the tactical kind of unit level to these kind of operations that take place at small teams within cyberspace, if that makes sense. I also think, I think that there are really important implications of what Maggie just said for how we think about applying cyber power in a warfighting context, which is ultimately what the joint force is about, right? It's about deterring conflict, uh, hopefully, and if that fails, uh, fighting and winning in, um, in war. And so if you can't reliably estimate that the use of a particular cyber capability will cause the effect that you want it to cause against that particular target and not other targets, um, at the time that you want to obtain that effect, um, and with, with, and be able to achieve the desired outcome, then it becomes really hard to think about how you um, integrate that capability into sort of a, a conventional warfighting context. And I also think it's why um, there's probably some, you know, at the end of the day, some sort of hesitation among sort of um, traditional uh, combat arms commanders about the utility of cyber operations because if I'm if I'm and I'm I'm a civilian right but if I you know imagined a world where I'm um you know commanding some unit and we're we're in a in a you know no joke war fighting context I want to know that a cyber effect is going to do what it's supposed to do and if it can't then I'll substitute it for something conventional Right. Especially once we've already crossed the threshold of war, um, it's a much easier to bomb things um, than it is right to to, to um, you know, to to uh, put ordinance on a particular target with conventional capabilities than it is to do so with cyber ones. But this doesn't mean that cyber operations are not useful in war fighting. And that's why I think getting back to Maggie's point about the analogies and thinking about um, sort of traditional doctrine and extending it to cyberspace, we need to start asking ourselves now, because, oh, by the way, you have to start preparing now to gain access to and develop uh, tools against particular targets um, you know, in our adversaries' networks now for a war that we're fighting three years from now, five years from now, um, and to hold those targets at risk right, over long periods of time. So we have to start asking, our, asking ourselves these questions now about what, what is unique about cyber? What can it do that conventional capabilities can't do? How can it be useful in either shaping or enabling or augmenting, or maybe sometimes providing, providing a strategic decisive effect under very specified conditions? in a warfighting context. And I don't think we're having those conversations. Um, and that's that's what I think the problem is. That's actually a great opportunity to bring up an article that the two of you wrote that we published as part of, of C2P, the Competition in Cyberspace Project. I'd encourage listeners who haven't read it to check it out. Uh, it's actually about the value of social science scholarship and research methods to understanding cyber conflict. Uh, one of the things that the article does is, you know, it looks at the cyber component of the war in Ukraine. In the article, you reference a a, a pretty widely discussed, recently published report from uh, from Microsoft that essentially assessed what they called the cyber war in Ukraine. Listeners can't see uh, the air quotes that I'm putting around that phrase. Uh, but you argued in your article that, you know, and I, I want to be careful not to misstate your argument, but essentially that calling it that, that the cyber war in Ukraine is perhaps a little bit misleading because we don't really have enough data to support necessarily the conclusion that, you know, we, yes, we're seeing a lot of cyber activity in that conflict, but we don't know for sure that it is a deliberately integrated principal part of, you know, say Russia's campaign plan. You know, after all, you can... You can you can watch how the conflict has unfolded, watch it very closely, as many of us have, and and kind of intuit that Russian commanders, 
you know, they might agree with you, Erica, what you just described, that it's it's easier to drop a bomb or launch a missile, fire an artillery barrage, deploy a maneuver unit against an objective. Uh, certainly in the U.S. military, we have well-drilled uh, systems and processes to do those things. What do we need to do in order to maybe increase the level of confidence in joint force commanders that you know that cyber is actually a useful domain within which to take action uh you know be it the main effort of an operation or or as a supporting effort yeah well so let me jump in on the on the microsoft report um about the role of cyber operations in the ukraine conflict so you know i think it's a i think it's probably an exaggeration to say that it's not a cyber war um, because there's a ton of cyber activity that's happening on both sides. And we're seeing some really interesting innovations. And I'll let Maggie talk about the Ukraine, Ukraine IT army, because I know that she's, uh, she follows, uh, she follows their work uh, much more closely. So I, I, I'll, I'll let her talk about that, because I, I know she's going to want to. But um, yeah, we're seeing lots of, um, I think, innovations on the Ukrainian side in terms of how they think about, you know, employing cyber capabilities. Um, and I also think we're we're confirming what a lot of academic research has shown about the challenges of coordinating conventional and cyber effects on the battlefield, um, sort of the limitations of um, cyber operations as being sort of decisive in conventional war fighting. Um, and I think that and this gets to, I think, my point earlier about you know, people feeling comfortable with uh, reverting to sort of their their priors when they look at um, you know look at new evidence, right? Like if if you believe that uh, cyber is this revolutionary domain that's you know changing the nature of warfare as we know it, then you're going to look at Ukraine and see all this cyber activity, and that will be a confirmation of what you know of of your pre-existing beliefs that like yes look at all this cyber activity that's happening and you'll get really frustrated when there are people who say there's no cyber war in ukraine because from your perspective you see so much stuff going on um if you're more of a cyber skeptic then you'll look at the evidence and say yeah there's a lot of activity but but what are these sort of operational and strategic consequences of all this activity it's pretty limited and we actually don't have a lot of reliable evidence about um, how much activity is actually being coordinated um, about, um, you know, so just because you're seeing two things happening in tandem on the in the conventional battle space and the virtual battle space, that doesn't mean that we have strong evidence that they're deliberately coordinated. And so and so you ask kind of like, well, what can then convince you know, joint force commanders of the utility of cyber? I think that it's on the cyber experts and specialists to do a better job of conveying what cyber is good for. And I think the problem is that um, we haven't found sort of the right language and the right frameworks to, to talk about it in a way that's convincing. Um, I do think where there's a lot of interesting evidence emerging, and we talk about it a bit in the article, but there is still a lot more research to be done here, is the role of sort of information operations in and through cyberspace on a battlefield and how that can shape the dynamics of a conflict, both within the theater of operations, as well as external to it when it comes to, you know, gaining and maintaining support from various external audiences. And it can be a, a bit trickier and more amorphous to talk about because it's not as simple as sort of um, talking about sort of conventional battlefields, operations and effects, but it is an area where potentially cyber could be quite useful. Uh, the other is the relationship between um, uh, cyber operations uh, for intelligence purposes to enable um, more effective conventional uh, maneuver fire effects, right? Um, so I just think that really the, the onus should be on the cyber specialists to figure out how to communicate better uh, to non-cyber specialists what actually the utility is. And I don't think we've done a good job of that. So Erica brought up before the IT army of Ukraine, and it's a, you know, they're on Telegram and they share every day, they put out a new target list. And so one of their cool, the things that have made me a major fan um, is the fact that they do these weekend themes. And this is all in my, and I'm probably using this term wrong, Erica, so correct me, but like this I see as a soft power application of cyber power because what they are doing, their weekend themes are targeting everyday life in Russia. So for example, um, a couple weekends ago, they put out 
a list of targets, meaning like IP addresses, websites that this IT army, who is this, this virtual group of volunteers hacking on behalf of Ukraine to attack the Russian cinemas. And that's because they're all state owned. So if people go to the cinemas, they pay money to see these films and that goes to feed the Russian war machine. And so they took down the ability for Russians to purchase online cinema tickets. And I think that's brilliant. Another one that they continuously revamp on the weekends is Russian food delivery. So if Grubhub goes down, lots of people in the U.S. are going to have a really bad evening meal because they can't just order their food out. So it's those little applications of of kind of out of the box or outside of the box thinking where you can have an impact in cyberspace. And I think this conflict is drawing attention from our senior leaders to the ways that we are seeing unconventional players and stakeholders on a battlefield. So, I mean, even the Elon Musk example, when the Viasat hack um, happened and Ukraine lost some of its connectivity to some of its military forces, and then Elon Musk swoops in with Starlink and provides them with comms, like that's a third party private player that's having an impact on the battlefield. It is a, also a U.S. person having an impact on the battlefield in Ukraine. And similar to this IT army, they are having an impact in Russia from around the globe and just massing forces, if you want to call it that, in cyberspace to have an impact. And so I think senior leaders are becoming more aware of its, of the need to, to understand cyber. Um, and I think that's been a push. And I think that people are trying to educate themselves more so so that they can be fluent in having these discussions. Because the concepts we're talking about are not foreign to anyone in the military. Like we understand application of force. We understand um, what it means to degrade or to disrupt something or to deny someone the capability that they typically rely on. And so those conversations can be had thoughtfully and intelligently about cyber aspect, assets without diluting it by just simply referring to them as like maneuver terms or kinetic terms or those types of things. And I think we're getting to a better space with that. The example of the IT army in Ukraine highlights, but I think is a really important point because this is not a standardized formal military or government organization. It's private individuals who are, you know, who are aggregating together virtually to create real world effects in a conflict scenario. In in uh, you know in the other domains, that role of the non-state actor is is perhaps more limited. Um, to varying degrees, of course. Obviously, it's a lot more feasible for you know, private individuals or non-state groups to to uh, participate in conflict on land than it would be in space, for example. But you know, and, and correct me if I'm if I'm mistaken in this, but it strikes me that the widespread access to the domain uh, cyberspace and access to the tools uh, with which you know to achieve effects uh, in that domain kind of put cyberspace in a in a different category what sort of challenges does that does that pose to say the US military if we're thinking about a future conflict scenario in which US forces are directly involved yeah i want to start off on the lower level and then i'm going to pass to erica who has much better um, kind of the strategic implications of it um, but using the IT army as an example so the the really fascinating thing about this population is the fact that they have norms that are established. Group behavior is well understood. And if you act outside of the group behavior, um, then they really just kind of block you from it. And, Codified norms? Uh, so they're spelled out. They have a website and, and it shows. But the other thing that they do is the fact that they provide instruction for how to do what they're asking people to do. So if you're not capable of hacking something on your own, but you go and visit and want to participate, there are some pretty low-hanging fruit level type activities that they instruct you on and provide instruction for. Um, and then there's a whole separate little chat room where people can ask questions and get advice from people that are in this. So this is a, you know, a community effort around a united mission and they receive instructions on a daily basis, and then activity happens. And, um, and it's a really fascinating ecosystem to look at. And when you think about that from the perspective of another, you know, from a, as a military member, and when you think about what U.S. Cybercom does, this poses a really interesting question for how we need to think about 
warfare in general, because we now have third party civilian actors on the battlefield, or we could even in some ways call these people, you know, think of criminal entities that are acting and having an impact on the battlefield. And what would happen or what would our response be? How would we respond to that if that was happening to us, if we were in a similar conflict? I think that raises a lot of very interesting questions that our senior leaders are probably mulling over all the time. Um, but that's the fascinating part. I think that the IT Ar Army of Ukraine has really spawned for, for this kind of moment in history and thinking through cyberspace. I do think that there's some interesting implications of, you know, how the IT Army was formed and to Maggie's point about how instructions are being given for how we think about norms around state sponsorship of cyber operations. Because, you know, from a U.S. perspective, we've taken the position in lots of different forums. Um, and even when uh, President Biden met with President Putin in Geneva of last spring, so I think it was June of 2021, and called out Russia for, you know, sponsoring and sort of permitting, you know, non-state actors to conduct illicit activities in cyberspace and saying that we would, you know, hold Russia accountable. Um, we can't have it both ways if it's also sort of the good guys who are doing this, right? And, and what's unique about the IT army is that the Ukrainian government doesn't use sort of the... Uh, the mantle of plausible deniability to sort of distance themselves from what these, you know, what this army is doing. Instead, it's actually calling up this army and giving instructions in a pretty official way. Um, and I think that poses some challenges for how we think going forward about, about norms and what state accountability means and how we hold governments responsible for the behavior that these non-state actors do, especially when governments sort of basically assume command and control of these groups. Uh, so that I think is a really interesting wrinkle and kind of permutation of what we're seeing. But in terms of this idea that, you know, the cyber domain is both accessible as well as the capabilities within it are accessible to everyone. I want to push back on that a little bit because I think we need to think about sort of the sophistication of cyber operations on a spectrum. Um, and that's where getting back to some of our earlier conversations about uh, trying to put some sort of constraints or limits or scopes around what we mean by cyber, which is this broad thing that affects everything. Um, yeah, it's, it is the case that there is a range of kind of low level capabilities or even like moderately sophisticated ones that are accessible and available to lots of people. But it still requires a sophisticated, highly organized, professional, competent organization with a cadre of skilled personnel with long time horizons and lots of resources to be able to employ cyber power in meaningful ways for strategic purposes. And that's a bar that's pretty high for most, um, most entities, certainly most individuals. And, um, so again, like getting back to some of our assumptions and some of the tropes and how we talk about cyberspace, you know, there's this image of kind of the lone hacker who can do everything from their, you know, mother's basement in New Jersey or whatever. Um, that may be the case for some things, but when we talk about cyber power in a military context, in a warfighting context, uh, there's still a pretty high threshold for the sort of strategic employment of that capability. And that's why you see um, states like the United States, which have um, a lot of organizational maturity, having uh, being far more capable in cyberspace than other states that have less organizational maturity and capabilities and, um, and skilled personnel and, you know, human capital and all of that. And so it does still matter. So, you know, I think we need to disaggregate this a bit when we talk about this question. So I want to shift gears a little bit for a moment and, and ask a slightly different question. Um, although it is one that again comes back to this theme of how difficult it can be to to apply existing ideas and methods and, and even administrative frameworks from other domains onto cyber. You know, we used to uh, we used to categorize each of the army officer branches as one of three things: combat arms, uh, you know, infantry, armor, field artillery. Uh, combat support and combat service support. Uh, 
we've since, um, you know, sort of replaced that with a different taxonomy. Uh, for instance, we use maneuver fires and effects now, uh, which includes a wider range of branches than, than combat arms does, uh, cyber being one of them. I think that that is, uh, fully in line with how our conceptualization of achieving battlefield effects has changed. But, you know, Erica, you mentioned, uh, Chris Demchak's idea of cyber as a substrate that touches on and is, is, is interconnected with everything else with, with all the other domains, um, but, you know, some of the other maneuver fires and effects branches are these discrete things. You can, you know, you can take an infantry unit or an armor unit and, and you can use it in combined arms warfare. But each of these units is still a particular purpose built thing. And I'm, I'm just wondering if there's some tension between those two ideas. One, that, you know, that cyber connects with everything. And two, that we categorize it alongside branches that are different, that, that have more clearly scoped purposes. Um, you know, I guess in other words, should we think of cyber as a combat branch? Yes. <laughs> let me, okay, let me, let me elaborate. Um, so yeah, cyber is considered a combat arms branch, and that may be surprising to some people who think about cyber more similar to military intelligence or to Signal Corps, which is where a lot of the personnel so when Cyber Branch was created, right, you had to uh, bring people into the branch, right? Um, and a lot of those, uh, I mean, there's pretty decent diversity in terms of the branches that uh, so prior branches people came from, especially at higher higher ranks where there wasn't um, uh, where there was more of a challenge in terms of um, filling out those filling out those ranks, but um, mostly populated by Signal Corps and MI, right? Um, so why should Cyber be considered a combat arm branch or maneuver? Um, and I, I think that there were some pioneers in the army who uh, recognize that um, cyberspace is an environment where, to Maggie's point earlier, uh, military personnel are engaging in, you know, with the adversary in a way that is far more routine than what most, um, you know, than what an infantry unit is likely to see, right? And so, and so, it makes sense to uh, to define cyber as uh, the cyber branch as a combat arms branch, um, and to and to really elevate it and situate it as one among equals across, you know, infantry, armor, artillery, um, uh, uh, aviation, and, and so on. I think the challenge, though, is that there's this gap between what the army sort of formally defines in name as being, you know, one among equals and the reality of how that's been institutionalized over time. Um, and I do think we need to take into account the fact that the branch is pretty young. It was created in 2014, right? So it was created after cyber command was, was created. It was created after army cyber command was created. And then you had the creation of the cyber branch basically by the stroke of a pen. Um, and then everyone had to figure out, okay, what is, like, what is this branch? Um, and so I think you're seeing this challenge where, you know, cyber requires some unique things in terms of personnel management and skill development in a way that's mismatched to how the army thinks about combat arms. And the army hasn't sort of adapted or changed, not surprisingly, to accommodate those unique aspects of what a cyber warrior needs and should look like, because it's different from what a infantry officer or infantry soldier needs and should look like. And uh, I don't know whether a bureaucracy like the army will be able to adapt over time to accommodate those requirements. And that's why people keep talking about things like, should there be a cyber service, right? Um, there's a space force, why is there no cyber force? Um, but so I think, yes, in theory, it makes sense that cyber is combat arms, but then it needs to be extended to how you um, educate, train, um, promote uh, cyber, uh, uh, cyber warriors. And, uh, and I'm, I'm pessimistic that there will be sort of meaningful innovation unless there's some major event that forces, forces the army as an institution to really reconsider this. Yeah. I, so I enlisted as a signal Corps soldier. I was a 25 papa, which dealt with like line of sight communications. And then I, 
um, did degree in the GoldenEye Commission as a military intelligence officer in, in 2013. And, um, had the good fortune of knowing some people that actually liked me and wanted to place me in the with um, 780th, which is our cyber unit. And so I had the opportunity to fill roles that not as an MI officer, but really what would become the roles for a cyber officer. And so it was natural for me to transition in 2014 in that first round of the transfer program to become a cyber officer. But I'm in many ways, I come from a different background than my peers because I am a social scientist. My PhD is in public policy and public administration with a focus on public management. But like all of my technical work came from being a signal soldier. And then integrating those two together and understanding kind of the complexities and loving to nerd out on kind of strategic upper level discussions about state behavior in cyberspace and what we can learn about state behavior in cyberspace based on actions and activities that we see um, means that I'm, you know, I'm in the right place. I'm among, among peers that also like to nerd out about these things. Um, but the complicated part for it being within combat arms is that there's a very distinct understanding of what it means for to be a combat arms officer or soldier in the army. And despite the misnomer that we're all like uncoordinated nerds, like there are some really incredible athletes in the cyber branch that would be surprising to you. But like, you know, there's so many things that stereotype what, uh, you know, an army officer for me specifically is supposed to be, do, and, um, and look like. And those don't necessarily translate into the type of thoughtful, creative, lateral or horizontal relationships that you have to, you know, create within the cyber force in order to get the innovation required to tackle some of the most wicked problems that we face as a force, right? Um, and so unlike my peer branches, I may be briefing a three-star um, at the outset and have regular interface with them as a second lieutenant. I might be a specialist that is actually the one that we have talked to the House Armed Services Committee because they know the operation best. And so that has been a challenge, I think, culturally from within the um, from within the Army is that we really, in many ways, cyberspace is, everybody likes to call it a team sport, but like you want to play your best athletes. And if your best athlete is a PFC, then we need to figure out a better way to compensate, to promote, to get those people to positions where they'll want to stay serving in a role in uniform instead of jumping ship and finding other opportunities outside. But I also think that that's one of the unique assets, strengths, whatever you want to call it, that we have being the U.S. military. We are amazing because we have a strong non-commissioned officer corps. We value our non-commissioned officers. We value our warrant officers who we see as subject matter experts. The cyber branch has an inordinate amount of chief warrant officers, right? We have just this amazing cadre of talent. And on the enlisted side, we have another amazing cadre of talent. And they're unique. They're, they're innovative. And um, when managed correctly, they can produce amazing results. And so thinking through alternative ways to help manage that force, I think is going to be important for the army to move forward because as you know, one of our public operations that has been released since is like glowing symphony that I was a part of. But when we talk about and look at the role that the persona Neil plays within glowing symphony, he is an O3 and he is the one that dreams of and comes with the help of his team to this realization of how they can take down the Islamic State's, um, you know, media production network. And it's not everywhere or not every army in the world is going to pay attention to someone who's an O3 and understand that they are the ones that are best suited to figure out how to attack, dismantle, and degrade, you know, a terrorist activity, um, their ability to produce media. Um, and so that is kind of a uniqueness to our United States military, where we have the advantage over our adversaries, where we do have that creativity. We just have to start figuring out how best to foster that when in the other branches that we're mixed with, like the combat arms, like hierarchy is king. And it's necessary because 
the stakes on the battlefield are very different than if I'm in an operations room on the Fort Meade campus, right? Really different. And so I think that's part of the challenge is those two cultures of combat arms, which is very masculine, very aggressive, you have to be lethal. And then cyberspace, which is collaborative, innovative, and very, has to be very dynamic and agile. I would also, just one, one quick point um, on, on what Maggie said. I think another uh, another ch- cultural challenge, too, is sort of the generalist versus the specialist model, um, particularly when you get to the more senior levels, right? Like the army calls them general officers because they're supposed to be generalists, right? Like, you know, you're supposed to be interchangeable, right? And have a general understanding of um, um, of the nature of warfare, and and if you really take that to it to an extreme, like you're you're a you're sort of a, a cognitive machine, right? You're interchangeable, but um, but for cyber, uh, you you need to have specialists, and you need to have specialists not just at um, uh, not just at sort of the lower levels um, in the chain of command, but at the highest levels in the chain of command, and the army doesn't have a model uh, for that. And I think, so I think that's in addition to everything Maggie just said, I think that's another real sort of cultural gap is sort of uh, sort of the idea of generalism and being a generalist versus being a specialist all the way up uh, to the highest levels in the chain of command. So to sort of wrap up, um, you know, I want to ask each, each of you kind of a, a, a broad question and, and I'll leave the parameters fairly wide open in terms of, in terms of the level that you kind of want to address the question at. If, there is, if there's one thing that can be done to improve our preparation for conflict in cyberspace, what would that be? And, and you know, this can be an initiative from, uh, from the E-ring of the Pentagon, from OSD. It can be something, you know, relevant to the Joint Force or specific to the Army. It can be, it can be something that's really focused at the tactical level. Uh, and it doesn't have to be the most pressing or impactful thing, just something that, that you've given some thought to and that you believe will, will better prepare us in the cyber domain. Erica, maybe we'll, we'll start with you. So, and this is based on some of the work that um, that I did with some colleagues on the uh, Cyberspace Solarium Commission. So I was the um, I was the sort of task force one lead. So I was focused on sort of the DoD and the IC um, and their role in cyber strategy and policy. And one of the recommendations that that we worked on, which uh, did not make its way into the NDIA, but which I was uh, which I thought was really important, was um, improving cyber education across PME. Um, not just for uh, professional military education, not just for the cyber specialists, but even more so for the non-cyber specialists to um, uh, to have uh, common standards across um, professional military education to uh, to educate um, non-cyber special uh, the non-cyber components of the joint force, particularly at the sort of O5 level and above on uh, the nature of. Uh, nature of cyberspace, the role of cyber power in war fighting, uh, basic concepts around sort of terminology and the nature of operations and so on. Because unless you, uh, and the joint force is, is great at, uh, at uh, devising these, um, at developing and creating requirements around education and training. And so I think if you plug it into there and you make it a requirement and you standardize that requirement across the joint force, then you will go a long way toward educating the non-cyber parts of the joint force, which is most of it, um, particularly the senior leaders around uh, what cyber is actually good for. And, but you need to have the right people developing that curricula um, and moving beyond some of the assumptions and tropes that we've been talking about for this whole conversation. Maggie, any thoughts? Yeah, I I guess that it's a continuation of like, there's a lot of really creative people out there. Um, And I think one of the risks that we face is as cyber as a force for, I'm thinking the army in particular, but as cyber as a force matures and we solidify kind of the training pipelines and we solidify the wickets that people need to go through and to meet their key developmental positions and all of that, I worry that we are going to also become very rigid in who we assess as being someone that belongs 
amongst the cyber force or who is going to be a contributor. And I say that almost from the perspective of the paper that Eric and I wrote about the contributions that social science makes to the broader force. So what I would like to see is a way for persons that come into the military and have some different skill sets, but are also have the cyber skill sets required to be effective in the domain, different types of development. Like why don't we have a strategist track for cyber officers so that then the Pentagon has operationally informed officers going into work on strategy that have experience running ops, being a mission commander, or even being an operator. Um, those types of upper level senior positions for the cyber force, but also for the army writ large. So understanding that there is not just one career path within the cyber force, but that we start to integrate cyber officers into more of these different types of skill sets. I, I firmly believe that we should be sending and have an opportunity to send cyber officers that have operational experience to law school because we get, you know, a lot of JAGs do not have that type of national security experience or cyber space specific experience in the legal realm. And I think that would go a long way to having the right assets in the right places within the force or even like our talent management. So our S1s, why don't we have a, you know, a skill identifier that shows that they've understood the cyber workforce and therefore can help out with talent management within the within that structure. So I'd like to see a way where we evolve into something more mature as an army and um, find different ways for cyber officers to stay in, pursue their goals, and be in the right places to help kind of keep it together and also remaining um, open and creative and not closed-minded about what a cyber officer looks like because uh, I worry that we're going to get too rigid and miss a lot of people that could have some really big impacts. So I find it fascinating that, um, you know, w with that broad question and its wide parameters uh, between your responses, you highlighted two pretty fundamental things, education and talent management. Uh, these are things that are obviously not specifically cyber, uh, but, you know, the way we go about each of those, the way we educate people, the way we manage talent uh, does does present maybe some challenges, but also some opportunities that are specific uh, specific to cyber. I think we are going to uh, wrap up there. Uh, I, you know, we might have to find some time to have you both on again. Uh, we started the discussion by acknowledging, you know, what a what a big topic set it is, and you know, there's a lot more we can we can touch on, and and maybe an opportunity to even delve further, uh, go into more detail on on some of the items that we did discuss. Um, I also want to highlight again the competition in cyberspace project. If you're listening to this and and you have really any interest in cyber, the project has generated a ton of of of, of fantastic content that that highlights some some really smart thinking on a, on a pretty wide range of cyber related uh, issues. You can find all of it uh, by going to the MWI site. Just just uh, look at for the special series button on the menu at the top of the site, and uh, and you'll see competition in cyberspace project pop up. Uh, I highly encourage listeners to to check it out. With that, I just want to thank both of you uh, once again for uh, for a tremendous conversation. Thank you so much. This is great. Yeah. Thanks so much. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay in touch with us and to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcasts, and research we're publishing every day. Thanks again.